my genuine feeling at the end of this like early initial round of applications was they want people that they can mold. They want people that they can completely make them who they want them to be. And they do not want actual, they don't want critical thinking. They don't want anybody to know what they're talking about. They do not want experience. They want a 19 year old, 22 year old who is willing to just say yes, sir, and shut up. This is Red Lines by Out of Architecture. The experiences that isolate us in our working world are also the stories that can unite our community and allow us to heal. In this series, we dive deeper into the core issues that plague the design profession and evaluate how they result in everyday conflict, discomfort, and workplace turmoil. We are your hosts, Jake Rudin and Aaron Pellegrino, the founders of Out of Architecture, a career resource network for architects and designers looking to find greater fulfillment in their work and help navigating the many challenges within the profession. Through our work, we've spoken with thousands of individuals, all with unique pathways and experiences. Too often in this work, we encounter stories of struggle, tension, and suffering. Redline seeks to bring a voice to these stories, those privately endured in a school or workplace, but often clouded by shame, self-doubt, and the questioning of one's professional choices. With each episode, we will ask a member of our community to share their story, we'll offer some guidance and advice, and discuss ways to move forward. For the purposes of maintaining confidentiality, names and some identifiable characteristics have been removed or replaced with pseudonyms. Their stories, however, are all too real. On this episode of Red Lines, we welcome Kay to share his experiences, challenges, and reflections on the transition from being a graduate to his first office and the dynamics of subcontracting versus being an employee and all the lines that can blur in between. Kay, thank you for joining us today on Red Lines. Hey, thanks for the introduction. I'm really excited to be here. It's our pleasure to have you. I want to start with our first question here that we love to ask at the start of every episode. And that is, what are you hoping people will take away from the story that you're going to share with us today? For me, the purpose is just to share knowledge and experience. I want people to know that if they're going through something similar, it's not normal, or it could be better. And I also want people not to pity. This isn't a story for anyone to feel bad about me. I've put myself in all these positions just as much as I've been in them, but very much just raising awareness and trying to decide what to do about it. I'm not there yet. I don't have those answers. It's funny because just like all the other podcasts, it's led me to you and the out of architecture. I think that's the right first step for me. I would love to sort of dive right in here and just understand a little bit about where you come from and what your background is and what brought you to architecture in the first place. I am oldest of seven. I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, actually, and I was homeschooled and really wanted to go to college. A low-income family, that really didn't seem like it was possible, so I actually joined the Marine Corps first. And then after doing five years, I was able to get out and use the GI Bill to go to the two universities that I was able to go to. One was a, a, a decent state school, and then the other one was one of the Ivy Leagues, which was pretty exciting. It really was formative in determining who I was as a person and why I am the way I am. But it also set me up for not failure, but for a lot of challenges that might not seem normal to other people as far as their experience in going through college, which is where our story kind of starts is just the college years and getting out and transferring from student to 
being my first employee. So I was older. Just for context, I was a ComNav weapons tech for the Marine Corps out of HMLA 169. Worked on Huey and Cobra helicopters. I've been deployed twice, once to Iraq and once to Afghanistan. I've been on all kinds of crazy cool stuff, but at the same time, I wasn't like a frontline soldier. So this isn't crazy or anything. Turned 18 in a foxhole at boot camp. And by 22, I was in charge of 60 plus people on 30 different aircraft in a combat zone, responsible for maintaining aircraft with lives on the line. And then after that, I became a CDI, which is a collateral duty inspector, which means that I inspected other people's work and then made sure that the aircraft was safe for flight. Again, I, in the States during training exercises and then back overseas. I became something called a desk sergeant to CDI, like a bunch of quals and a bunch of different stuff. So that was where I was when I left the military, was what you might consider or translate to something in the neighborhood of upper management. And then to become a civilian at the age of 24, 25, trying to sell people appliances at Home Depot. There's nothing wrong with that. I actually enjoyed that job. But you, there's, a, there's a huge disconnect between the roles and responsibilities and the authority and the confidence you have to have. And so when I walked in the door to my undergrad, it was kind of like, here's all these students who are running around trying to do what they're told because they're the smart, just like your other podcasts I had the pleasure of listening to. They're overachievers who want to please. And I consider myself in there. I did really good in high school. I think I had a 4.0 when I graduated, but I just didn't think I could afford college, hence the military. But here I was with a bunch of people pleasers who were high achievers and who wanted to do good and who were passionate about their job and, or about their future job. We want to do good in school. So here we are doing all-nighters and stuff. And professors are like, oh, let's do 100 iterations of this model overnight. And they're telling you this at 7 p.m. And I'm like, I have to go to bed and go to work for Lockheed Martin in the morning. That was my civilian job after I, one of the ones I had when I started architecture school. So I'm telling professors, no. Like I'm already an adult, I'm already experienced, I've already been in a position of authority, and I know that what they're asking me is not acceptable. It's crazy. It's not balanced. But everyone around me was like, you know, they'll look at you going, you're crazy. You're absolutely nuts. You can't tell them no. And I had a very, very, very hard time in undergrad and grad school, and I don't think I made myself any friends, to be honest. But that, that's where I came from. My job was to tell generals and lieutenants, colonels and captains in the Marine Corps pilots that their aircraft was not safe for flight and they needed to exit and go away. As a corporal, as an E-4, as a, as a 19, 21, 22-year-old, that was my job. It was imperative that I did my job. And so then to be in a no-stakes classroom with your education on the line, which is important, but to have someone say, you're going to stay up all night and do all this work. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. You're the bad guy. You're the, you're the, the rebel. And then in Ivy League, when you get into situations, when you're with a bunch of passionate students, but who are from culturally different backgrounds, that's even worse. All of that to illustrate that I came from a certain set of experiences that set me up to be more or less upper management than thrown into a position where I was the entry level, which is fine. I want to be clear that I understand just because I'm an excellent project manager of aircraft maintenance does not mean that I understand every intricacies of the architectural process. I had stuff to learn. 
but I was also hyper aware of where the line might be crossed. And so it was really challenging through all of school, really, to not be the inciter of revolt, to, to balance and temper my own desire to not hurt myself, to give myself sleep and rest and a balanced life while also pursuing the things that I'm also guilty of. I want to stay up all night in 3D model. Hell yeah. It's fun. It's amazing that we, what we can create. I want to 3D print and then go outside and paint it and talk about stuff and get super, super drunk and model for two hours. And then when you wake up in the morning, you're just kind of, whoa, what did I make? This is cool. I, I'm, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I think it's amazing. But okay, this is school. I'm going to shut my mouth as best I can. I'm going to say no to staying up for three straight days and 3D printing 16 different iterations of something. I fought those battles. But I was definitely like, okay, now I'm going into the real world. And A, I already have a sort of an understanding of how business and, and, and being an adult and working in a, in, a, in a job should be. But at the same time, I also don't know because this is a different field. But what I do know is that now school is over. They don't control my grades anymore. They're not, they're not the, the gatekeepers to the scholarships, which I needed. They weren't the gatekeepers to the internships that they refused to pay for. So I was ready to walk out and get a job and then demonstrate quickly that I was actually well above entry level and deserving of a living wage. I was old enough to be like, okay, I got to get in there, get this job, show that I can do well, and then I will be in a better position to request higher pay so that I could actually move forward with my life. Another thing to note is that I was making 90 plus K with Lockheed Martin as a maintainer who wasn't AMP licensed. For those who don't know, you need an AMP license, which is a power plants license to be able to work on commercial aircraft. The military doesn't just give you that, even though you work on aircraft, so you have to actually do that later. The glass ceiling on that job is pretty, pretty low. I was probably a couple of years away from maxing out my pay without any kind of further additional training which was a possibility, but I didn't want to be around that. So what I ended up doing is saying, I can't do this. I'm going to give up my $100,000 a year paycheck to go into debt to be an architect because that was what I wanted to do. I really wanted to do design thinking. I really wanted to take the progression of troubleshooting and understanding the electrical systems and aircraft and how aircraft go together, how they operate, and then take that kind of joy in learning and then being able to understand something to the point where you can just work on it and then go transition to buildings. I can go do any job in the world I want as long as I get this degree as opposed to getting a different degree. So that seemed the most accessible one for me to do. So that's why I went there. But that sets the stage for who I was as a person getting out of school with the kind of idea I had for the future who has already proven that they can do a lot with a little. And I wasn't going to be growing up in the office. And I was no longer going to be held back by the weird stuff that's in education. You can likely already tell that Kay was not your normal architecture student. Not as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and as innocent as most of us once were. He's been in the real world before going to architecture school and can immediately see how ludicrous sometimes what is asked of architecture students is. This immediately puts him at odds with not only his professors, but his peers as well. And this is a clash of two completely different viewpoints that does not bode well for Kay. That was a fantastic summary of just what is already a very complex narrative, even just arriving to day one of your architectural education. 
I think first of all, Aaron and I want to make sure to thank you for your service. And even though it does feel a bit trite to say it is, it is very much appreciated, but it's also it's interesting because for you, it was a means to do something that you, you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, right? Which is afford to go to higher education. And I'm wondering in that decision of giving up your pretty, pretty decently paying salary after your years of military service, what were you hoping was going to be the, the end transition after leaving your bachelor's degree? Oh man, great question. And, and thank you. I'm trying to brainwash myself into appreciating and thanking people who thank me. It's a thankless kind of job. One of the, one of the negative things about being a Marine is that you are brainwashed into this other echelon of excellence. Sounds like architecture. Yeah, exactly. It was a natural progression without me even knowing it, but it's like the best is not the best. Like you have to be the best of the best. And then if that's not good enough, you're the best of the best of the best and there's no end in sight. And there's always a better thing to be. One of my drone instructors, I think right before I graduated boot camp actually said that, hey, we've been hard on you. F-bomb, 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 you guys are whatever. But it was like, you guys are actually like good. So the worst of you here, the person who's like the shittiest Marine here, you are better than all of those other civilians. And it's something that I thought about in the moment, but didn't really take to heart. And I think over time I've been like, okay, you have to actually be in my own mental head, like hey, relax, chill. It's okay not to be the best of the best. And I've been working on that for decades. So thank you for thanking me. I do feel a small sense of pride in having accomplished it. And I think my motivations at the time and still are hopefully pure, but it was definitely a challenge. War is no joke. So my reasoning for leaving Lockheed Martin was twofold. On the one hand, I don't want to be around negativity. I'd been around enough of that. I've been around death. I've been around violence. I've been around poverty. I, I don't have time in my life to give any of that, any, any energy. I don't want to be a part of it. I want zero stress. I want the stress to look like the least stress. That is my number one priority from a child. I just don't want any of that. So I don't, I stay away from drama. I don't want to participate in anything that just drags you down those roads. I don't have time for it. And then the other part of that, this is the pity part. I don't want people to feel pity for me. I'm not a victim. But when you go to war, and I don't think a lot of people fully understand this, but when you go to war, like you have to make a decision in your mind. And when I went over there the first time, I had to decide and wire my brain that I'm not coming back. I want to go to school so badly and I want to change my stars so badly that there is no other option. And that was it. Once you make that decision, snap, you're good. I kind of had this Hail Mary, hell or high water, I'm going to go to school or I'll die. And that's okay because that is in pursuit of a goal that is in pursuit of something worth pursuing. If it's hard, do it. If it's worth caring about, do it. It doesn't matter really how you get there or how hard it is or not. You just go, you just go for it. So when I got out and I went to my first job at Lockheed Martin, I was kind of like, is this it? Not only is there like a limited glass ceiling, because sure, sure, I could have bought, I probably could have afforded a kid's college. I probably could have got a summer home at some point. Financially, that was a, a decent path. However, 
Was it what I really wanted? Was it going to satisfy my decision to risk everything to get it? And that really, that became the equation. And it's really guided all of my life, really, even now. Like I have yet to meet something that I cannot do. As we said, Kay wasn't your typical architecture student. I've been soaking wet in 30 degree weather and laying down in flowing water, working on aircraft for four hours in the middle of the winter. I've been shot at, we've been bombed. I've had no sleep for four days. I have no food, I've been homeless. It's been so many things that would have probably stopped anyone. But when you have the passion, you set those goals and you don't make it about the desired expectation. Like it's never been, I wanna be in a home I, or, or I wanna have a fancy house or a car or I wanna make this amount of money. It's always been, I'm headed towards this thing because this is what I wanna do. And what I found is that architecture became a catalyst and a, and a pathway towards critical thought and design thinking you flipped a switch when you deployed and you said, I'm, I'm not coming back. But then when you came back, you've chosen architecture as a pathway to make all of that worth it. You were willing to die to be able to get an education. This is the education that you chose. And one, I think the profession is, is better with you in it. But then two, that means that it has certain expectations that you need it to live up to to make that worth it. I think it's very interesting to watch the pieces fall into place as we approach this kind of next phase where we ask you about your transition into the profession. You're talking about this interaction with the professor where you're telling them that this isn't necessary, right? This isn't helpful for me to stay up all night and do a hundred iterations. You know, I can see that there's power in it. I can see that there's emotion. I can see that what you're asking is in service of creating a dedication to something, but it's not about the outcome. And I think that level of being an adult and coming into an architectural training, which kind of demands a little bit of a juvenile appetite for exploration and willingness to kind of be told what is right, is very interesting. I think it also was very clearly illustrated. There are just things that are right, things that are acceptable, and things that don't fall into that category. Tell us about what happened when you left and went to find your first job. Okay, I got to pay rent. I've got to send out a bunch of job applications, hopefully go to some interviews, schedule those around classes because I'm about to lose my financial aid. So I'm like, okay, I am going to start applying to stuff. And I think also I, I probably, in my zeal might have come off in an, even an interview is just a little bit maybe to like either A, I'm going to see through your bullshit so you're not going to be able to take advantage of me and then not get hired. Or B, just, oh, you're going to be bored here. We're not going to, we're not going to deal with you. So I applied to a bunch of places near my school in that city because I was hoping to be able to cushion the fall. I needed to be employed pretty quickly. A school is a very financially training thing for me. And that's my own fault. I should clarify, I, I accept full responsibility for all of that. I went to Greece twice. Like I did study abroad, like I did stuff. I accepted money to do things in the pursuit of getting the experience, having the knowledge, because that's what matters. I'll find a way. And I still feel that way. I will find a way. But so I'm sitting here, I'm applying. I'm either getting ghosted at the salary negotiation stage or I'm not getting asked for an interview silence, or I might have a back and forth, but it just wasn't something that was going to work. I've made some pretty dumb mistakes too. I've left a little bit too late on my bike because I didn't have enough money for the subway. 
and I showed up a few minutes late and just probably put a bad taste in some people's mouths. I think I missed one interview completely because the email went to spam. I've actually sent the header letter to a potential employer with this name spelt wrong. And it's worse. That was one of my professors. So not only was it like a new person, it was someone I should have known. And it was like, I got a polite email back from someone on the team. It was like, hey, thanks for applying. We've got your thing. We'll be in touch. Also, by the way, the principal's name is blah, blah, blah. And I was like, flip the desk, delete the email, didn't even call him back. I knew I wasn't getting hired. Frankly, I also think that's a really stupid reason to not be considered. I still think that I was one of the top students of my year at operating at that level. And that goes back into all of the best of the best kind of crap. But it was like, okay, I'm not going to get hired by these people. But also in hindsight, leap deprived, struggling, panicked, new hire is freaking the fuck out. And they have a typo and you're not going to call them back because you have 16 other applicants. That just comes off to me in hindsight as like one of the most arrogant things you could do. It's like, got plenty of options. You don't dot your T's and capitalize your I's. You're not even going to be in the running. And it's so Ivy League means nothing. All of the past means nothing. My age means nothing. It's long story short, it comes out that my genuine feeling at the end of this like early initial round of applications was they're looking for cogs. They want people that they can mold. They want people that they can completely make them who they want them to be. And they do not want actual, they don't want critical thinking. They don't want anybody to know what they're talking about. They do not want experience. They want a 19 year old, 22 year old who is willing to just say, yes, sir. And shut the fuck up. And like clockwork, I got a few months left, two months left or a month left on my lease. I was screwed and I couldn't wait anymore. And that's where the economic straps of reality hit. And it was like, I'm not moving to New York because I can't afford to live there. Even if I did afford to live with that salary, because I was getting, my, my friends were asking for 60K in New York and they were getting, but 60K in New York is like 30 in Nevada. So thankfully I have family, right? Lots of siblings. And I had a couple different states and a couple different stops I could make. I mapped it out. I got a U-Haul and I left. So I find myself in Texas at my brother's house and I'm able to live there rent-free. And so I was able to squeak out another couple of months. I think it took three or four, again, rounds of interviews, borrowing my brother's car, like going, trying to eating his food, like just all my shit in the garage, trying to decide if I should keep it or sell it. It was tight, which is fine. But I found again, that everyone was kind of like, you know, you're going to be bored here. Or yeah, we're, we're really excited about you. Let's, let's talk salary. Do you have something in mind? And I put out a number and then I'd get silence. And I was like, what in the actual F am I like crazy? And here we'll take a pause and I'll explain how I got to my number. I made a lot of money before technically, but I understood that wasn't the same thing. So I didn't start there, but I certainly didn't start from zero. I looked at Glassdoor. I looked at various individuals in the entry level. I looked at the AIA's calculator. My firm was near Austin and I was looking in the Austin, Central Texas area. So like really looked in that general scope. And so I took all these resources trying to find what are people getting paid? And then I also balanced out, okay, I'm going to need, what are rent in, in this area? So I'm going to need at least that. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't even consider a car. I didn't even consider, I didn't have a car. I didn't even consider a car payment. I was like, what do I need to buy food and rent an apartment and pay utilities. 
So I was even undervaluing there. And I came out to about 65K in 2019 in the central Texas region. And that was backed up by data, supposedly. And a couple of positions passed through. A couple of ghosted me straight up. This is three months in. Also 2019 at that time in that area didn't really seem to have a lot of jobs. I'm not sure if I missed the first hiring window, which is likely because I, was, I showed up in July of 2019 instead of May. So I probably experienced a lot of struggle just from that alone because I might've eked out maybe a little bit better if I had started earlier. I found out, I finally found this one person and they really were excited about having me join and we finally got to the financial thing. And I just was like, look, man, I've been ghosted here a lot at this stage. So what are you expecting to pay? Because I put out a number and I get silence. And then he was like empathetic. And I think he's still a good person even now. So I think he was trying to disabuse me of my opinions in a good way. And he was like, you're untested in architecture. And like new hires in this area who have recently graduated with no experience in a firm, like they get... 40, 43, 45K a year. And I was like, that's really low, man. And he was like, that's what we're paying. And he was like, and I have no way of proving this, but he was also like, okay, that's because I've talked to a lot of my friends. This individual, by the way, they're on the AIA's board of ethics. So he was like, I got this person who's in power and knowledge, you know, who's been around. They've talked to other principals and firms in the area in their network of friends. And this guy is telling me that I am not going to see more than like 43, 45. And I said, that's better than zero. And so I accepted it and I started working for him. Man, you hit it with all the passion you want. I was like, I'm going to show this guy that I'm worth more and I'm going to demonstrate that pretty quickly. And so I hit it with all the same effort that I put into everything before. I biked nine miles one way every day for a month and a half or two months before he finally was like, I need you to go do errands. I need you to be able to like go to project sites and pick things up and drop things off and all of that. You need a car. And I was like, I can't afford a car. And we talked it out and he said, okay, here's upfront. I'll give you, what do you need? And I was like, I'm not going to buy a new car with whatever you think you're going to give me if you could only afford me 43K. So I was like, okay, let's see. I need to get a used car. So I found something for about $1,200, a beat up truck. Again, had a week, two weeks to find this, found it. He went ahead and cut a check, which I soon discovered was actually a forward in advance, which I didn't realize. And that's fine, whatever. So it was like crackers and I had the car now. I just couldn't insure it or put gas in it. So I was like, okay, great. Okay, great. And then for a couple of weeks of trying to eat office snacks and whatever my brother could afford to feed me, which I felt bad. But I mean, that's what I was making. He basically gave me like two weeks up front and then I had to wait two weeks. It was whatever. Anyway, you dig yourself out. And I worked with this guy for a while. And that was like my first exposure transitioning from like school to the job. And I gave it, I was like, okay, as an experienced individual in with my past, I was like, all right, this is what they're telling me. This is what the world is. I've got to overcome and figure out how to navigate this. So how am I going to do that? First, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to listen to this dude and see how the business is run. And I'm going to give that, I think I gave myself six months, like internally, like on day one, I was like, I'm going to be here for six months. I'm going to pay attention to this dude and I'm going to look around and see what other jobs are out there. But I'm not really going to apply to anything. I'm just going to look around. 
and give them all my effort. I'm just going to learn how this job is done. And then within a couple of months, I think it was like three to five, but I don't remember the exact dates now. We had one individual who had been there for three years left because the way they explained it to me is that they would try to communicate when there are problems and there would be a momentary period of, okay, yes, I see your point. Let's change. And that, but then they wouldn't. And so it was, here's this issue I'm always having and then nothing changes. I'm tired of talking with you about it. I'm just going to say, fine, whatever. We'll do it your way. All right. Yep. Okay, fine. And they just got tired of that. And they actually left and became a graphic, like a cartoonist, an illustrator. And then the other person was a licensed architect. And they were kind of like tired of being told what to do too. And they left as well. And so I'm sitting here like, okay, so I've learned how the job is being run. And now I'm the senior person on the team. And I've learned that these people have been here for years and they didn't win. To those of us in the profession who've also gone through architecture school, this is a familiar tale. You graduate at great expense and effort, and then you take a job where you're possibly underpaid and maybe underappreciated and almost certainly undervalued. But like most of us that studied architecture, we did it to be architects. We didn't do it with the expectation that that passion and that love for what we do would be ground out of us so that only the few survive. We didn't spend years in architecture school not to be an architect. You may have endured a similar story to that of Kay's. But he's grounded out so far, and at this point in the story, he's able to make it to the next step, which comes with a whole new set of challenges. Now I'm the senior person we hire another recent graduate and an intern because that's the solution, by the way. If you're struggling to make payroll, you hire people so that you can have more projects and then you suck at all of them equally and you make the same mistakes. Then you go home and you think you're doing a good thing because there's no one above you saying, knock it out. Value, biggest or one of the biggest values I got from learning from that firm that I, I definitely want to keep in the back of my mind until I die. Always have somebody. Always have a support, mentor, someone. Find someone that is not afraid to tell you to knock it the fuck off. Because if, you, if everybody is afraid to talk to you and tell you the truth below you or around you or in your circles, like you are in danger of fucking up big time. And big lesson there. And then that led me to the point where I needed to find a different office. So I became the senior member. We had these new people. I was trying to be like the gopher, the in-between between the boss telling you all this stuff and then having to teach these people while also telling them that's really probably not the best way to do it, but it's how we've been taught. So think critically and pay attention, but this is how we're going to do it. And then I think we were doing 14 projects at one time by my, like I was the one. And of course he's doing his job, getting people to come in and finding new work. But he's also popping in for five minutes and saying, oh, move this over here and change this. And you're like, okay, great. Don't we need a grease trap? Uh, or why are we putting a kitchen on the second floor, a commercial kitchen on the second floor of a walk-up, like coffee shop? Or why are we putting a counter right where somebody needs to stand at the drive-thru? If you have an ADA, if you have someone in a wheelchair, which they're legally supposed to be able, like forced to hire, they can't reach the car with the cup of coffee. Why would I put a counter there? No, do it. Just do it. And so I basically quickly learned that here I was 
with the ability to manage being throttled because I didn't have that right on paper, but then, and by the way, I didn't have the title either. I was like design intern or architectural designer. I didn't even think to negotiate once the other people left. I should have done that here. So I'm doing that. And then I'm managing these other kids, managing the team. And then I'm fighting the fires that he created because I could see that they were coming. Like for the grease trap situation, we had a coffee shop. The owner asked me if we needed a grease trap. And I told them, I don't know. I need to research that. I asked my, the boss and he was like, I don't know. Maybe we do. And so I eventually I found out we do need one. Espresso does emit a bit of fats and over time it will clog your septic. And this is like a 150K project. There's no way that they're going to want to rip up their brand new building in two years because they're making coffee. I knew this was a bad idea. And so I'm telling that. And he's, no, don't tell the client that. I did it. I did it anyway. I told the client he needed a grease trap. And that was a bit of a small argument. But I got to the point where like, I had to start saying, okay, I know I'm not supposed to. I know I've been told not to, but I have to because I owe an obligation to our clients to not fuck them, is how I saw it. Again, roping back into what you pointed out earlier, there's a way that this should be. There's an expectation for how architecture should go. I need to make sure that's happening because I don't want to be a part of it. The bad, because my name's attached to it too. I guess I saw that early. Like, I know it's not their office. It's me too. I think at this point, it sounds like you come to this firm, you're basically told like all of your experience doesn't matter. We have to, you're untested. We have to start you as fresh. Within a year, it sounds like you're managing a project without the title or the salary that it comes with. And all of the experience that you've brought to this role prior to architecture is pointing out all of the inefficiencies, the inconsistencies, the problems that will arise. I wonder, was there ever another conversation with this firm owner around a year later or a year in what your experience was? And was there ever a moment where there was an ask or a request or even an offer of a higher salary? So yes, there was an annual review. So after three months in, there was an initial review. Okay, we're going to bump you up to the 45K. You're no longer on probation. We're going to keep you. And then... Here's your new salary. And I'm really proud. I'm really excited. I'm glad you're here. You're bringing, bringing a lot to the table. Up until that point, I just shut up. I just did what I was told. Some things happened and I would be like, I don't know if this is a good idea, but like, I'll do it. And I did. We want to do like schematic design for some building, like something. And I'll pump out like 13 like options and then show them. But then his original option always ended up being the one that we used. So quickly, I was like, okay, so I'm going to give you two options. And now I'm going to give you one option. And now I'm only going to make what you want me to and only what you explicitly said, because I've got a lot of work to do. And I don't want to spend time coming up with stuff that's not even going to be considered. It'd be like interrupting you as you're explaining your option. It'd be like straight up, like coming up with some thing that they liked or whatever. And then a lot of it's like arbitrary. Again, I want to be very clear about one thing. I am very passionate about if you own your own business. Like you have the right to do whatever you want. I do feel like this is a team effort and we should all be a part of it. And I want my own value and I want it to be equitable and all of that. But at the same time, I also know that if it's your business, I don't want to tell you how to do it. If you ask or you think that I'm going to add value to it, I would love to share my opinion. But if I keep getting shut down and everybody's leaving because they kept getting shut down, I don't even want to have that conversation. It's not worth it. And yes, we did have a review period. There was at this office, despite being a small boutique firm, 
and no HR department, there was like, okay, we're going to talk to you at three months and then we're going to talk to you at a year and you got a yearly review. But the yearly review was like, hey, I really, I'm happy that you're doing these things, but I just feel like you're not there yet. Was like the breakdown of it. It was just like a disconnect between how I thought I was doing and how they thought I was doing. And again, whole picture, I'm not being appreciated for what I'm doing. And then also everyone else is left. So there's no point in really having an argument about it. And that person just happened to be very defensive. He'd worked hard to get to that point. And how dare you tell them how to do it differently? How could you possibly know you're new to this field? Simultaneously being totally cool with letting me talk to owners and clients and run jobs and do all the stuff. So I was like, okay, total mixed messages there, total mixed opinions, really confused. But I knew that there was no point in having that. So I never really pushed as hard as I would. And I also knew that if I, my ultimate goal is to open up my own office eventually, or be a part of leadership, it would also be helpful, or at least not a bad thing, if I went and worked for other people. Again, if I'm such a hotshot and I think I know how it's done, why not go somewhere else and make sure that I'm also just not sniffing my own stuff? I could be wrong. I'm okay with being wrong. That's how you learn, but I wouldn't know any different if I assumed that this is the only way to it. So I did. I chose to, instead of fight that battle, I chose to go find a new job. And immediately within a couple of weeks or months, found a new position, another firm within Austin with a 10K bonus. And then when it got time to tell them, I was like, hey, yeah, I got to go. Like, I'm going to go be a project manager for this other office now. And it was, it was very, hit him, I think, out of left field. But like in my mind, as a person who has been a leader for a long time, that was a no-brainer. What other options did you expect? Given the signs you'd seen already, why would you think it would go any other way? Unless you thought I wouldn't leave. And what's wild is he actually said that. He actually told me, I didn't think you would do that. I didn't think that you would go find another job. And it just reaffirmed that he didn't understand who I was and just was blind to it somehow. Also, by the way, didn't even offer a counteroffer. Didn't even ask me how much I was going for. It was, okay, if you want, I'm open to having the discussion for you to stay. But that was it with absolutely nothing on the table. It really warned me that there are people in the field that felt that their job was to educate, that everybody below them was a, like a student that the student never ended. And I do agree to that to some extent, like you never stop learning. And I certainly don't ever want to stop learning. That's part of the joy of life. But to enter a conversation with a stranger or someone who's been around for a while with the assumption that they, that you know more than them is a really dangerous thing to do. Like you should surround yourself with people who know more than you. I'm at my current position right now because there's someone there, a coworker, that's a really good friend of mine who I think is better than me. I always learn from that guy. That guy keeps me pushing. So you got to surround yourself with good people who know more. If you are comfortable and you're not learning anything, then you need to reevaluate what you're doing there. And it's either you're contributing or you're stagnating, I think. You have all these experiences. Um, you leave what sounds like a, a toxic place. You explore another role um, where you're given a little bit more autonomy and the actual title that goes along with that. But then you end up leaving that role as well to a role that's more of a, a subcontractor type role. Why don't you talk a little about what led to that decision and 
kind of where you're at and what your perspective is on working in that way as opposed to as an employee under under somebody. So here I am. I've transferred off. I've got this new role. I'm now technically like a project manager. I am. I was a lead, like a, not lead designer, like architectural designer, project manager. And I'm running projects that kind of falls south. In that same thing happened again. There was just a clear, like now I knew what to look for. So it was like, okay, you, your performance is here. And I think my performance is there. There's a disconnect, except this time they had an algorithm and I was, okay, why well, disagree with you? I think I'm doing fine. This just doesn't seem to be working. I seem to be going and working for people and they seem to have these arbitrary metrics by which I'm being measured against and they have fuck all to do with my experience. It's time in grade, which is to say that one to five years in architecture, you're just in this bracket and there ain't shit you can do about it. And then B, it was, we have these metrics by which we're going to measure you, but because we're telling you what to do, ultimately they're self-referential because it means that you're doing what we told you to do, but because it didn't work out, you're the employee's performance who sucks. So it's your fault. And so thereby we can't afford to pay you. It was like, you didn't, you weren't profitable enough on this project. But then I would sit there and say, but you're the one who told me not to do these things or to do these things. Like I told you that we shouldn't do that, that we needed to do X and you told me to do Y. And then the building department kicks it back, thus delaying the project three weeks. When I told you we should have done that to begin with, but who am I? So you didn't listen to me. And now it's delayed. And now three extra weeks of man hours were applied to that project. And then you're going to tell me that your algorithm shows that I suck. I don't, I honestly don't have an ego. I don't care. I'll tell you if I think I know, I'll tell you and I don't know. I'll tell you when I have to ask. I don't care. I just want to get, I just want to do a good job. And it was like, I was having these arguments with them and then caving and doing what they told me to do and then being penalized for it. So I was like, okay, yeah, this is not working. The track in architecture must no longer be to be an employee. If I'm having this much trouble within two to three years of even just getting out the gate, then I need to do this a different way. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to start my own firm. I guess my route is to just go find a garage and just open up shop and just struggle and just learn on my own. Apparently, like, that's just my path. I don't need to be told. I'm just going to have to learn it the hard way. I'm going to have to make mistakes, lose clients, spend money. Like, I'm just going to have to do it that route. Fine. And I accepted it because at least that way I'm in control of things and at least I'm being penalized for the mistakes that I make. And I would much rather do that than be eternally in trouble for shit I have no control of. Because despite even having the title in the second position, the second office, I didn't really have that authority. I want to zoom out and really just talk about you came to this career, you came to this profession as an adult from an entirely different perspective. There are plenty of things that are wrong with it. Absolutely. But what do you think could be done to address some of the issues that you've encountered in any of these scenarios? What you think could have made it better? I want to be like very optimistic. I am that way normally. All of this was like a growing and a learning thing. I went to the school of hard knocks as a kid, I went to the School of Hard Knocks as a Marine. I went to the School of Hard Knocks as a student. And then I gave myself a couple of years in architecture to be able to stand 
and speak from a point of knowledge. I didn't really know when I started how long any of those segments needed to be, but I think I feel like I'm here now. And I think moving forward, I'm very invested in trying to be a part of the solution to fixing this somehow, but also like maybe providing insight into how we might get there. And to that end, I think part of this is that A, we need to get a lot less insecure and we need to be a lot more confident just as people. I think that issue that came up in your book and a lot of the people you interview is that people are, and even that all of the people who've led their offices, they do the same thing. I don't know why we kill ourselves trying to produce 15 different options to show the client 15 different options. Are we afraid that we have to show them every possible thing so that they think that we did work? Have faith and confidence that we have examined the facts, looked at all of the information, and we believe that one of these two things are the best solution. That let's be more efficient with our time. Let's actually say, you know what? I really want to do this and the client's gonna like it or not. And that will solve some of our problems, just not being so damn insecure. Sometimes it takes being an outsider to this profession, coming to it with different experiences, to see solutions that seem so simple in hindsight. So obvious, but not to those who have been in it for so long they can't see the forest for the trees. That needs someone with a life outside the industry, someone with one before they joined it, to point out some of the inefficiencies, inconsistencies, or just things that just don't plain work. I don't know if it's subconsciously or consciously deliberate, but if you engineer enough stress and deadlines, if you are literally hopping from one fire to another, you don't even have the time or the bandwidth emotionally or intellectually to put your head up and say, hold up here, we're doing this all wrong. We need good managers and we need to be concise and we need to put up our schedules and we need to figure out a way to mitigate these risks. One of the problems I had with emails was use as little words as possible. It was like a competition. The least amount of text in your email, the better. Don't tell clients too much information. Don't tell subcontractors too much information. Don't overexplain yourself because no one sits there and reads it. I write in paragraphs sometimes because it needs to be. And I eventually that came to a head where a client said, I'm trying to understand why we're doing this. I wrote like a four paragraph essay. Here is what you're asking. Here is why that matters. Here is what we've done about it. And here is why does that answer your question? And he was like, why would you send that essay? No one's going to read that. You just confused the client. And he literally emailed back and said, thank you. Now I understand. The other side of that email problem communication was that the goal was to punt. If I'm working on elevations for project A and then I get an email from project B, I should say something that punts it back to them so that I don't have to deal with it. Just kick it off till tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll deal with that. Tomorrow we'll deal which means that in three weeks, I know I'm going to have to spend a couple hours that week on that drawing. But oh, guess what? We're struggling with money and payroll. So we just got a new job a new project. So now I have to do 10 iterations of like schematic design plans to be able to present to the client at this meeting that has to happen. But I also have to deal with this fire that I know is going to come back and bite me in the ass. So it's like, we should stop doing that. After everything that you've been through, sharing your stories here with us today, what are you hoping people take away from what you've shared with us? I really hope that everybody listening 
at first feels validated like I have been in the other podcasts I've listened to, but even getting this platform, that these things are weird, odd at best, and downright discriminatory or abusive. Just feel validated and then feel empowered to consider your personal situation, the things in your life that are important, putting them first, and then deciding what you need to do about it. Because you might not be able to change the field on your own, but you can definitely change your part of it and your experience. And then maybe together, collectively, it'll bend the trend. And then also, I don't see myself as a victim, despite how awful some of the things were. There were tools that I was in a position to accept or not. And I did have extenuating circumstances that limited my options, but eventually you get to the point where you learn what you're going to do and you decide what you're going to do and then you can go for it and you at least feel confident in the path that you're taking. And for me, I still don't think I want to leave. I hope it's not some like weird trauma-based thing, right? Where the decision to go overseas and join the Marine Corps has now somehow made me this person that's hell-bent on putting themselves through unnecessary trials. But I do think, I do really have a lot of passion for this field. I do want to do good. I do want people to live in good buildings. And I think that I have the strengths and maybe the experience enough. And hopefully I really am trying to be humble and have humility. So it's not that I want to be like a star or anything in this field, but I think that I'm in a unique position to do a lot of good by be, by staying in. And the moment that seems to change, the moment where that doesn't make any sense anymore, I'm not afraid to go out and go somewhere else. And I think that gives me the confidence to stay in even more, maybe, at least for the foreseeable future. I think that's a brilliant answer and a, and a very positive note to end on for us. Kay, I think we can only say thank you so much for sharing your stories and your passion with us. And we hope that you stay and create the space to make better buildings for people, but also to make the profession better. I think it requires people like you to drive change. So we are so grateful that you took the time to be here with us and record. And uh, we're looking forward to sharing this with the community. If you enjoyed this episode of Redlines, subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast streaming service. Don't forget to check out the show notes for relevant links, resources, and other information related to today's story that we hope will help you in your own journey. If you want to hear more of these stories, consider supporting us as an Out of Architecture Patreon subscriber, where you'll have access to exclusive Out of Architecture content, our private community, and more. And if you or someone you know has a story that you'd like to hear on an episode of Redlines, please send us an email at redlines at outofarchitecture.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>